Hear now the word of the Lord from Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. This past Friday, my family and I went on some errands. We had to run some errands uh, all together. And uh, we got to a store where we needed to go. My wife went in and I stayed back with the kids in the van. Um, Our baby started in this time to get a little restless. So I had just gotten him out of the car seat when my wife texted me uh, that she was done and she was headed on her way back out. Well, in the course of um, trying to get the baby back in the car seat and texting my wife to let her know where exactly we were parked in the parking lot uh, so that she could come out to find us, um, I, I guess I set my phone on top of the van and forgot that it was there. And it wasn't until an hour later that I realized when we were home and getting out of the van and heading inside and I went to grab it that I realized the phone was not with me. And in a moment of horror, I realized what I had likely done. Now, that was an unsettling moment, to say the least. I realized that my chances were not good. Things looked grim. There was almost no way I was going to be able to get this phone back. And I started to think about where this could possibly be. We, we drove across a long area, and I thought, how long can a phone stay on the top of a van as it's driving at high speeds? And then, apparently, it fell off. So can a, can a phone survive a fall to the pavement at that high speed? And even if it survives the initial impact, can it survive being driven over by the cars and the semis that I was sure would be driving over it? At that moment, the risks were high, uh, the odds were very low, uh, but I, had, I was faced with a question, you know, what, what can you do when there's nothing you can do? Uh, there wasn't much I could do at that point to go back and, and tell my foolish, forgetful self to take my phone off of the van. And so what can you do when there's nothing to do? Well, you can only do what you can do. And so I did the only thing I could do, which was I pulled up, find my phone, and I was able to GPS locate my phone to the middle of a two-way street uh, that I knew exactly where it was. It was about the first major turn we took. Uh, it was about 8.8 miles from my house, and it was 1.8 miles from the store we, we, we were at. So if you're asking how long can the phone stay on the top of a van, it's 1.8 miles. And so I went there in a panic. Uh, I was using my wife's phone to FaceTime with her at home to coordinate so that when I got there, she could press the, the little tone function that it'll beep and let you know where it is. Well, when I got there, there was way too much traffic, which didn't make me feel better, uh, but I couldn't hear a thing. And so here I was. I realized it wasn't in the center of the street. Thankfully, there was actually a raised median. And so to try to get a better look, I, I walked out on the median 
This is in the dark, mind you, as cars are whooshing around me, uh, the things we do for our phones. And I, I went all the way out, and I couldn't hear anything. And she says, I'm, I'm hitting it, I'm hitting it. And I couldn't hear nothing, but as I walked, eventually I saw it, and there it was. And incidentally, if you need a good review for a um, cell phone case, I have one. Uh, it's totally unharmed. Now, there are times in life where there's just not much we can do. Again, the, where the risks are high, where the odds are very low, and in those moments, it's, it's really tempting just to quit before you start, to say, well, there's, there's really nothing going to be done here. There's absolutely no chance that this will be pulled off. I genuinely have no idea how that landed in direct middle of the median, except by the grace and the providence of God. But the preacher here wants us to know that as much as he has said throughout this book about foolish action, about fools rushing into areas where they haven't thought things through or acting in a foolish way, especially by putting too much faith in a world that is ultimately vain and broken, the, the preacher does not want us to make the opposite mistake of thinking that wisdom consists in inactivity, in passivity, in just waiting back and just throwing in the towel and quitting before we have actually started. If just saying, why bother with this at all? That approach, as the preacher tells us in this passage, simply isn't wise. And so the preacher tells us that in unsettling uncertainty, and I certainly had unsettling uncertainty with regard to my phone, we need to take appropriate action. And that's our big idea. In unsettling uncertainty, take appropriate action. This is a passage about not so much uh, the, the ways that we can save the world with our heroic efforts, but this is a passage that is designed to get us to do something, to do whatever it is that we can be do, even when we don't know at all whether things are going to work out. So the first part of our passage is, first of all, unsettling uncertainty and appropriate action. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 4 for that, unsettling uncertainty and appropriate action. And then the second part, which is uh, you never know. You, you never know. And that's an exclamation point if you're um, uh, taking notes uh, there in verses 5 and 6. You just never know. Two points today. Uh, and I do want to say this is a sermon that is dealing with more common themes, themes about the ways in which we conduct our lives in the world personally and professionally and things like that. And so it's good and right for us to focus on that. However, I do want you to know that at the end, uh, I will um, consider what this has to say about the gospel. So uh, hang with me until that point. So the first part, unsettling uncertainty and appropriate actions in verses 1 through 4. Uh, verses 1 through 4 have uh, a series of proverbs uh, where there's a little bit of wisdom given in each one. And individually, uh, some of these proverbs are quite obscure. It's hard to know exactly what the preacher means in some of these proverbs. But together, the message is very clear. So it's important for us to understand together what they are saying so that we can go back and look at each proverb individually. The, the big idea that, that he's getting at is that, again, the, the vanity of life that the preacher has spent so much time talking about. Don't put your hope in this life. This life will not satisfy you. You will not find what you are looking for. That message, the preacher doesn't want us to misconstrue as a justification to shut down or to retreat or to withdraw or to slip back into passivity in life. The preacher has warned us often about foolish action. Now he is going to warn us about foolish inaction. Uh, one of my favorite Proverbs gets at this. It's Proverbs 26, verse 13, which says, 
The sluggard says, there is a lion in the road. There is a lion in the streets. And that's all it says. And so you have to think, well, why would a sluggard say that there is a lion in the road? And you realize, well, there probably isn't a lion in the road, but somehow the sluggard convinces himself that there is a lion in the road to justify his passivity, his laziness, his sluggardliness. It's easy to imagine risk, and there very often is real risk all around us, but it's foolish to see danger and risk as a reason not to do something. Again, in unsettling uncertainty, take appropriate action. Uh, Derek Kidner, a commentator on this passage, looks at this section, verses 1 through 6, and just summarizes it with two words, be bold. Well, as we look at these individual proverbs, the first one is probably the most obscure, the hardest to interpret. In verse 1, the preacher says, cast your bread upon the waters. That's the hard part to understand. For you will find it after many days. Now, it's that last line that gives us a little bit of clarity about what he's saying. Whatever it means to cast your bread upon the waters, and I'll go through some possibilities here, uh, what the preacher is getting at is that we must, first of all, account for delays. Account for delays. Uh, Whatever is going to happen from casting your bread upon the waters, the only benefit you are going to get will only happen after many days. There's going to be a delay. In life, whatever we do, the things that we do, we have to account for the fact that things don't happen rapid fire as much as we wish that they would. So what then does it mean to cast your bread upon the waters? Well, there's three major options. The first one is almsgiving, giving to the poor. Now, the weakness of this is that it is nowhere mentioned or hinted at in this passage, but that's one of the traditional interpretations through the ages, that this is about uh, giving to the poor, almsgiving to the poor, and the idea is that it'll come back to you, it'll find you out in many day, after many days. The second option has to do with thinking of casting your bread upon the waters as some kind of senseless action. And really, if you think about it, nothing is gained by throwing your bread into water. It just becomes a soggy, soppy mess. You can't really eat it anymore. It's just goopy. And the idea is that this world is so unpredictable that even the senseless things that you do will have some result at some point in time in the future. Now, that's a possibility, but but I think the best explanation is that this is talking about overseas trade putting your bread, your, your products, your, 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 your work, the produce of your work, onto ships and sending them out onto the seas to trade overseas. Now, there are two reasons to think this. Uh, Douglas Miller, in his commentary, points out how many economic matters are dealt with. Again, we're, this is a sermon about common things in our common everyday lives. He talks about bread in verse 1. He talks about the portion in verse 2. In verse 4, we have sowing and reaping. Uh, and again, this tells us that these economic matters that we're probably not dealing with, with, with almsgiving, giving to the poor, we're probably dealing with some kind of productive uh, business commerce kind of activity. But the second reason for thinking that this is trade overseas is that we are told twice in 1 Kings that Solomon himself, the author of Ecclesiastes, was engaged in that very work. In 1 Kings 9, verses 26 through 28, and verses 10 through tw- and verse, or chapter 10, verse 22, we read twice that Solomon himself put his bread, his goods, his tradable items onto ships and sent them overseas to trade. Now think about the uncertainty of overseas trade in those days. You couldn't get real-time updates about where your cargo was. You couldn't even get delivery notification. You wouldn't find for many days whether the ship had successfully sailed somewhere, made the trade, and come back with your profits until many days. And the preacher's saying, it's still worth it. 
even though it's going to take many days, account for those delays, but be bold in your life. Don't slip into foolish inaction or passivity. But verse 2, the preacher tells us also this, that we must diversify your investments. Diversify your investments. Look at verse 2. Give a portion to seven or even to eight. There's that diversity. For you know not what disaster may happen on earth. You invest in one area and a disaster may strike that. But if you invest in seven or eight areas, it's much less likely that disaster will strike all of those areas. And so through your diversification, your wealth will be made safer. Again, risk is not a justification for inaction. What the preacher is trying to say is uh, don't put too much stock in the vanity of this world, but you have to live. You have to make an income. You have to support yourself. And so make sure that your action is wise and it's governed by wisdom. Well, third, verse 3, the preacher says, whatever will be, will be. Some things are inevitable and beyond our control. And so look at verse 3. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. Some things are going to happen. Sometimes it rains. Sometimes trees fall. Those things are going to happen. You are going to encounter disasters and hindrances, whether you're active or not. So he's saying this not to paralyze us, but the opposite. He is trying to prove to us that there is never a risk-free adventure. And so in verse 4, he tells us not to be ruled by risk. Don't be ruled by risk. Look at verse 4. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. Now the preacher has already said it a few different times in Ecclesiastes that there is a proper time for certain things. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 1, that's the, the famous song that was sung by the birds. To every uh, thing, there is a time and a season under heaven. Uh, you maybe heard it on the radio, or have you at least read it when we were studying it in this passage. There's a proper time for everything under the sun. But what the preacher is saying here is there's never a perfect time. If you're waiting for the wind to stop before you sow, or if you are waiting for the clouds to dissipate before you reap, You'll never find that perfect time. You've got to get on with your life. You've got to get on with your work. Before I worked in full-time pastoral ministry, uh, I worked uh, for a tech startup. I was a bivocational pastor. I, I pastored in my free time, and for my full-time job, I worked for a tech startup. Uh, I had the privilege of working for one of my best friends. He was my boss. And um, like most startups, um, we had a, a pretty good idea uh, that we didn't fully know how to package or market or sell, but we just worked really hard to try to figure things out as we went along. And so my job at that time was I was in sales. I made cold calls, endless cold calls to try to set up meetings where I could give sales pitches, where I could give trials of what we were doing in the hope that one day someone would pay our company for what we were doing. We were working really hard to get this company off the ground. Now, at that time, another company uh, was started right about the same time, and it was in the same sphere, the same industry, we had the same home city, and so we were kind of competitors right from the beginning. And maybe because of this, um, they really started to hate our company and really harassed and attacked our company. It got so bad that my boss had his cell phone number posted on Craigslist with, Pete, with this company asking them to call and harass my boss uh, at his home. It was extremely unsettling. But the, the low point for me was when I came across a, a comment on a blog article randomly. It was a blog article about business ethics. And 
there was a story that was told about me, about my interactions with one of my clients that was absolutely a lie about the bad ethics that we had apparently engaged in. And when I saw this, that they were attacking me and naming not only my company, but my client's company, I was hurt by this. I was embarrassed. What was I going to say? I was scared. I was angry. I felt helpless. This was extremely unsettling. What can you do when there's nothing you can do? Well, I worked not only for one of my best friends, but also his father was involved in this business. And we went and asked him, a man named John Watson, and he'd been in business for 30 plus years. And I I don't remember exactly what he said, but I remember the wisdom that he shared. He says, this kind of thing happens. This kind of thing happens, and this too shall pass. So he said, don't worry about that. But he says, the second thing is, you just got to keep doing what you're doing. Don't let this distract you. Just keep doing what you can do. Just keep moving. And that was such an encouragement from a man who had clearly seen his share of battles and, and has faced his share of attacks and had seen so much because he was giving the same wise advice as the preacher does here. Again, think about what the preacher has said about the vanity of this world. He said, no matter where you turn, no matter what you do, there is going to be unsettling uncertainty. The proper response to this is not inaction. We can't just slink back in our lives. The proper response is appropriate action. Well, after offering these four parables... The preacher then tries to give sort of a background justification. What justifies the four things he has told us? And here's the justification. It's that you don't know much about this world, so you never know which of your efforts may prosper. So look at section 2 in verses 5 through 6. And again, this is the part where it's just, you never know. You never know. Verse 5. The preacher writes, as you do not know, you don't know, you never know, as you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. The preacher is saying, you don't know much about this world, and he goes to the most basic fact of life. Indeed, without this fact, there would be no life. God created human beings to be embodied souls. We are souls and we are bodies. And you can't separate that. Well, if you do, that's called death. When the soul is stripped away from the body, if you just have a body without a soul, that is a dead body. That's a corpse. And in that time, when our souls are separated from their bodies after we die, we're not complete. We are awaiting the resurrection of our bodies so that we can once again be embodied souls. Our souls are never meant to be without bodies. And the preacher is saying, think about this mystery. How is it that a soul comes into the life of a human child growing in the womb? Now, this is a great proof of the, 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 the sanctity of life in the womb. The soul comes to the child in the womb. This is a human being in the womb. This is one of the proofs we see in Scripture that life is sacred and we must protect life in the womb. That's part of what we are seeing here. But he's getting at this mystery. How does this happen? And the answer is we just don't know. Even theologians debate this question to this day because the Bible doesn't give us much information outside of this verse about how this comes to pass. There's one theory among theologians uh, that just as your body is shaped by the mingling of the DNA of your parents, so also your soul is produced or generated by the mingling of your souls of your parents. You, you pass, just as you pass down the material part of your body, so parents pass down also the souls down to their children. That's called traducianism. 
But there's another view that God creates each new soul individually in the womb. Um, and that soul comes to the child in the womb. That's called creationism. And there's a healthy debate among Bible-believing theologians because the Bible just doesn't say much about this mystery. And what the preacher's saying, if you don't even know about how you came to be, what do you know? What do you know about your life and about the work of God who makes everything? Well, verse 6, since you don't know much, you never know what may prosper. Verse 6, in the morning sow your seed, and at the evening withhold not your hand. This either means sow from morning until evening or sow in the morning and in the evening. And I also wonder whether the two sowings might refer to two different kinds of seeds. Because the next thing he says, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Again, he talked about diversifying earlier in verse 2, give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. So he may say, he's saying, keep working, work diligently, and may, maybe work in a, in a, in a, in a, a different way so that uh, whatever diversification you have to do, so that something will prosper and your entire crop will not be lost. Now, regardless of what he means, again, the point is very clear. Unsettling uncertainty should not keep us from action. It should spur us to diligent action. You just never know. If you don't understand the way that you came to be, how can you know how God will work in and through your work in the world? And this is the key issue here. This is what the preacher is bringing us into the, the work of God in the world. You can never understand the mysterious work of God in the world to turn things about according to his will. Now, sometimes it's vexing. We work our hardest and all of our efforts come to nothing. The preachers talked a lot about that. But here he is saying it's actually to spur us to action. You don't know what will work. So when you're working, you are entrusting yourself to the mysterious will of God to bring about his results in the world. The 5th century church historian Theodoret tells a story about the mysterious work of God in the world, a story about a Christian monk named Telemachus. Now, for whatever reason, Telemachus was present one day at a Roman gladiatorial battle. Now, now Christians hated the gladiatorial battles. If you don't like the violence of a football game, understand that when someone gets injured in a football game, everyone stops and it's a big deal and they all clap when that injured person leaves the field. In a gladiator battle, the point was to fight until blood was shed and people were left dead in the arena. And so Christians hated the gladiatorial games. But one day a monk was there and he saw what was happening. He was so horrified by the violence and the bloodshed that he ran out into the arena. Now, the accounts, there are different accounts. It's unclear exactly what happened, except that we know that he died in the process of this. This monk was either killed trying to get between the gladiators, or he was killed when the crowd thought, who is this who has the audacity to interrupt our entertainment? And they demanded his death, or maybe the city prefect demanded that he die. Something happened and Telemachus died. And you think about all the gore and the bloodshed and the violence and the disregard for the sanctity of human life that Christians should oppose for. And could it get any worse than this? That now a Christian's blood was shed as he was trying to stop the barbarism. But in the mysterious working of God, the story of this went to the Christian emperor Honorius who from this point on January 1st in the year 404 forward took stock of this and made a ban on the gladiatorial game so they were stopped from that day forward. 
One man didn't know what to do. What can you do when there's nothing you can do? One man did the only thing he could think to do, and it was a terrible plan. It was the only thing he could do, but it had no chance of success, and he was killed in the process of this. The risks were high, and the odds were low, and he lost his life. But you never know how God might work. You never know how God might work. And that's the kind of boldness the preacher is urging us on toward in this passage. Now, from this passage, let's consider two applications. The first, again, is at that common level. Again, this is a passage that is dealing with our common lives, what we experience personally and professionally, politically and culturally. And the first application is this, that in unsettling uncertainty, take appropriate action. That's our big idea. Brothers and sisters, it's so easy to look at this world and despair. It's so easy to look at this world and be discouraged by everything happening in politics, in our culture, in our neighborhoods, everything happening in our personal lives and in our work. It's so easy to just open up the paper and find a thousand new reasons to be discouraged. How can anyone function with these issues looming over our heads? Wouldn't it be better, don't we all sometimes fantasize about retreating, withdrawing, going somewhere else, building a compound somewhere where we can be safe from this world. But the preacher gives us such valuable wisdom here. He doesn't tell us to be cavalier or to be foolish, as though these issues didn't exist, to live in denial and pretend that things weren't happening. But he also doesn't want us to give up, to throw in the towel, to resign ourselves to passivity and inaction. Instead, he says that in unsettling uncertainty, Take appropriate action. Account for delays. Understand that progress and positive change doesn't happen quickly. Two, diversify your investments. Make sure, make yourself less vulnerable and expand your opportunity for growth and success by diversifying where you invest your time, your talents, and your treasures, what God has given you to steward. Whatever will be, will be. Bad things are going to come one way or another. We don't know in advance. The only thing that we know in advance is that we can't change what's going to happen before it comes. And fourth, don't be ruled by risk. Don't give up hope because of how bad things look. I heard someone recently distinguish between hope and optimism, and I thought it was really a good point for Christians. He says, Christians are not optimists, they're hopeful. It means that we don't think that every little thing we do is going to work out perfectly in the way that we imagine it's going to. That's what an optimist does. And Ecclesiastes is a good dose of cold water on our optimism. But Christianity, Christians are always hopeful. We believe that the God who is working all things and making everything and bringing everything to accomplish his will is a God who loves us and a God who is caring for us and who has our best at heart for those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. And God teaches us here that he is at work in ways that we cannot possibly understand. In our families, in our work, in our neighborhoods, in our church. When you continue your work, you don't do so in spite of everything going on in denial. You do so because you know that God is the one who is ultimately in control. If you are feeling stuck today like this life is not worth continuing, the preacher says you have no idea what God is doing in and through your life. You have no idea what God is bringing out of what you are doing and the frustration you are feeling. Now, again, the preacher is addressing all of life in this passage, especially business and professional pursuits. So it's right to give a a general consideration to the exact subject matter he's addressing, but it's also important as we're here today to not miss 
the gospel in this. And that's, that application goes like this, that in the uncertain growth of the gospel, take appropriate action. What's so interesting is the way that Jesus uses this message. Jesus draws out the preacher's message here in Ecclesiastes, and he draws it into his many sermons in the kingdom of God, especially as you think about all the way the kingdom of God deals with sowing and reaping and the uncertainty of the growth of the kingdom of God. Jesus took the preacher's message, and he says, this is about the kingdom of God. In Mark 4, verses 26 to 29, he tells this parable, for example. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. You don't know how your soul came to be in your body in the womb. The farmer doesn't even know how the crop grows. All the farmer can do is to be diligent, to keep his hand to the plow, to keep working, even though he doesn't know, to know who knows. No one knows. You never know. But to keep working, expecting that the God who makes everything will continue to work just as he has promised, that seed time and harvest will never pass away until this world ends when Christ returns. But Jesus said this wasn't just business advice. This isn't just how we should conduct our farms and our professional lives. This is about the progress of the kingdom, the progress of the gospel of Jesus Christ in this world. Are you discouraged by delays of the progress of the gospel? Charles Bridges, in his commentary on this, writes, uh, see how this passage furnishes to us a valuable rule and encouragement. He says, much of our toil in the gospel seems to be in vain. Much disappointment arises from the world and often more from the church. The soil is uncongenial. The prospect of harvest is precarious. But the promise is sure. You will find it after many days. You don't know how the kingdom is going to sprout, but you will find it after many days. Are you unsure whether certain opportunities for ministry are worth it? Are you unsure about whether certain investment of the word of God into someone else or into your own life are worth it? Well, part of what the preacher says is diversify your investments. As a church, we're trying to pour the word of God into people from a number of angles. We're urging you to worship privately at homes and with your families and to do so as a part of disciple groups here at the church and Bible studies, Sunday school classes, to take part in outreach and missions and evangelism, to spread and scatter that seed of the gospel even though you don't know how it's going to grow. And ultimately, in our corporate worship services, what we are doing right now is the pinnacle of our week where Jesus Christ is at work spreading the gospel of the kingdom into our lives. Which one of these strategies will be the silver bullet? We don't know. God doesn't give us that. He just says to be faithful. Keep your hand to the plow. Don't wait until the perfect time when the winds have ceased and clouds have gone away. Continue laboring in the gospel. Share Jesus Christ wherever you go. And lest I miss an opportunity in a book that is largely pre-evangelistic, trying to teach us wisdom in this book, lest I miss an opportunity, let me tell you the gospel right now. The gospel that we are talking about, the Jesus Christ who, who used this sermon and integrated it into his own preaching about the kingdom is a gospel about the Son of God who loved you so much 
that he was sent by his father into this world to die for you in your place. God so loved the world that whosoever believes in Jesus Christ, he gave his son, and whosoever believes in Jesus Christ shall not perish but have everlasting life. This seed is the gospel that goes out to all the world, and you don't know where it's going to fall on good soil. Our task is not soil diagnostics. Our task is to scatter the seed and wait on the God who makes everything to do his work. Are you worried then that disaster is going to strike this church? Let me clarify it for you. Yes, disaster will strike this church and the church as a whole. Disaster has not ceased from striking the church of Jesus Christ until the day he sent his church into, or from the day he sent his church into the world. Rain clouds will gather and trees will fall. We can't control that. We know it's going to come. We can only keep our hand to the plow. Are you doubtful in your own life about whether the time is right to serve or to share the gospel with someone you've been praying about for a while? Well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I can't answer that question. To everything under heaven, there is a time and a season. But there's a difference between looking for the proper time. And Scripture says there is a proper time for everything under heaven and waiting endlessly for the perfect time that will never come. The proper time does come. The perfect time will never come until Jesus Christ returns. 500 years ago, those who began the Protestant Reformation were wondering whether their project to recover the Scriptures and the preaching of Jesus Christ crucified for sinners had any chance to go anywhere. They were wondering about this. They were laboring in the gospel and didn't know where this would go. In fact, 500 years ago this year, we celebrated the 500 anniversary of the Reformation as a whole four years ago in 1517. But 500 years ago this year, 1521, was the year that Martin Luther was excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church. It was in 1521 that Luther appeared before the Diet of Worms, uh, where he had the chance to recant the preaching and the gospel. And he had to think about this overnight. He knew this was an incredibly momentous decision in his life. Would he recant or would he stay faithful to the scriptures? And on April 18th of 1521, he said those famous words, unless I am convinced by the testimony of scripture or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Amen. And according to some tradition, this is when he said, here I stand, I can do no other. In the face of disaster, what did he do? He could simply say, faithful to the word of God. Keep his hand to the plow. Keep studying, keep praying, keep preaching, keep teaching. He did not know what God was going to do. He did not know how those seeds of the gospel unleashed again after being clouded under a dark period of history where the gospel was veiled and covered over. He did not know what the gospel was going to do, and neither do we. He was called to be faithful in his time, and we are called to be faithful in ours. And at the end of the day, we don't know how God is going to build his kingdom the kingdom of Jesus Christ, but we are given promises that should drive us to take appropriate action anyway. One of my favorite is in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, and with this I'll close. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor 
is not in vain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us faith to trust that you are continuing to work out your plan. In the deepest of uncertainties, we pray that you would give us faith, no matter how unsettling the situations we face, to continue following you, to continue to take appropriate action, to do whatever it is that we can do. Not as the hope of saving ourselves, we're trusting in Christ alone for our salvation, but trusting that you will take the few seeds that we scatter and will build something that we cannot think or imagine by your work and by your grace and all for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.